what is the purpose of the church? Why do we exist? What's our goal? What's our aim? Seems to be a lot of confusion about that question in the world today. In one survey, 89% of churchgoers that were surveyed said that they thought that the purpose of the church was to meet the needs of them and their families. Now, just by observation, it seems like some churches, whether they would verbalize this or not, seems like some churches are living as if their purpose is to elect the right people in office. In other churches, it seems like that their purpose is, is merely just social justice. So what is the purpose of the church? Well, ironically, in our passage today, we see that a pagan mob in Thessalonica actually gets the question, the answer to that question right. What is the purpose of the church? The purpose of the church in picturesque language is simply this, to turn the world upside down. To turn the world upside down. What does that mean? Well, that means to, to bring about a radical change to cause a disruption, to upset the status quo. That, that's what the gospel does. By God's grace, the gospel snatches people out of the world, snatches people out of the enemy's hand, and it transforms them. And when it does, when that happens, the world notices, and the world typically doesn't like it. One of my favorite metaphors for the local church, and just remember all metaphors fall short at some point, but one of my favorite metaphors of, of the local church is that of an outpost. An outpost is a military camp that is located at least some distance away from the main military base. And so in the case of the local church, we are an outpost of the kingdom of God that is set up in enemy territory. And our mission is that of foot soldiers, of foot soldiers who, who actually leave the outpost and we carry swords, and our sword is the sword of the Spirit, that is the Word of God, the Gospel. And we carry the sword into enemy territory so that we can be on a, on a specific rescue mission, a rescue mission to rescue the souls of our general, this is our general's mission, to rescue the souls of the men and women and children that are there. To, cap, to take the captives, to set the captives free. And everyone in this outpost, everyone knows the mission, everyone owns the mission, and everyone is engaged, at least in some way, in this mission. Well, in Acts 17 today, I want us to regain a sense of our mission, of our mission, as we see Paul and Silas carry this sword, the gospel, into Thessalonica. And then I want us to spend some time in application answering the question, how can we, Grace Church, how can we be more faithful to the mission that God has entrusted to us to turn the world upside down? Well, we've been walking through the book of Acts uh, right now in chapter 17. We're in the middle of our second, Paul's second missionary uh, journey. Uh, over the past few weeks, we've, we've been on a very important stop on that journey, which has been in the Roman colony of Philippi. We've seen the gospel take root in Macedonia. That is, the gospel has taken root in Europe. And we have seen that the, a church has sprouted up. And a few weeks ago, we saw that that church started with the household of Lydia. And then it grew last week to the household of the Philippian jailer. And perhaps there were some, some others that were a part of that church as well. When we left off uh, in, 
the end of chapter 16 last week, we saw that this missionary band with Paul, they had departed from Philippi, and in this week we're going to see where they've landed. They've landed in the very important city of Thessalonica, and we'll start there uh, today in chapter 17. The main thing I want us to see in this text today is this, that the gospel proclaimed boldly will turn the world around you upside down. The gospel proclaimed boldly will turn the world around you upside down. First thing, verses one through three, Paul and Silas proclaim the gospel boldly in Thessalonica. Verse one, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. And if you could put up that map, that would be great. And so we see that they leave Philippi, which is, I'm not tall enough, but it's up there. And they make their way down on a, a highway that's known as the Ignatian Way. This is like the I-40 of, of the Macedonian world during the time. It runs east to west, a very important uh, road of commerce. And they go down and they, they hit uh, Apollonia. They meet Apollonia first or Amphipolis first? Amphipolis first. And then that's about a 30-mile journey from, uh, from Philippi. And then they make their way over to Apollonia, which is a, another 30 miles from Amphipolis. And then from Apollonia, they make their way down to Thessalonica, which is about a 38-mile journey. So altogether, this is probably taking them roughly about three days. And it seems like that they have their, sets, uh, their sights set on Thessalonica from the beginning. And that makes complete sense because it is a very, very important city. Mas Thessalonica was actually the largest city in Macedonia. Scholars estimate that the population during that time could have been upwards of about 200,000 people. So to kind of put that in perspective for us, Wilmington would be about 60% of that size. Wilmington has about 120,000 people. In 42 BC, uh, Thessalonica was given the status of a free city. And what that meant is that they were able to uh, govern themselves. They were able to exercise uh, their own governmental administration. So they tended to follow more of the Greek form of, of uh, government administration rather than the Roman form. And it was also, and that's important, by the way, for our text today. I'll show you how that has bearing on our text when we get there that they were a free city. Uh, it was also a religious city. Uh, there was a lot of, of pagan uh, religions that were in Thessalonica. And as we see even in our first verse today, we know that it, 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 there in the city was a, a synagogue. So Judaism had taken root in Thessalonica. Uh, in, in contrast to Philippi, you may remember that there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. There weren't enough people there uh, to, to have an established synagogue, but that was not the case here in Thessalonica. Verse two, as was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue. Now, at first glance, that might not seem like that big uh, of a detail, not that important of a detail, but I want you to think about the context here. Paul and Silas are coming off of a brutal beating in Philippi. And so the wounds are still fresh on their backs. And why did they get those wounds? Because they had shared the gospel. Not to mention, if you recall, what happens when they typically go into a synagogue and proclaim the gospel? Well, I'll remind you, on their first missionary journey, they go into Antioch and Pisidia, into the synagogue. They proclaim the gospel. The Jews are jealous. 
incite persecution, and drive them out of town. They go to Iconium. They go into the synagogue. The Jews are jealous, and they try to stone them. They are able to escape from that. But then they go to Lystra, and when they get to Lystra, the Jews from Antioch and the Jews from Iconium track them down and end up stoning them there in Lystra. And so when it says that Paul went into the synagogue, it might as well say that Paul went into the lion's den. You know, I try to think about what would I do if I was in Paul's shoes? If I had just come off that brutal beating in Philippi, well, I'd probably, I'd probably disconnect for a bit. I'd probably go to Emerald Isle. I'd probably rent a house for a couple weeks, let the, the wounds on my back heal a little bit. I'd probably uh, rethink my strategy, saying, man, this just didn't work. And every time I go into a synagogue, I get beaten up. And I might even do a little ministry from afar, maybe write an epistle to the church in Lystra. But that's not what Paul did. Paul does something completely different. He goes into the lion's end. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? Well, I'll let him answer that for us. Here's what he says in 1 Thessalonians 2, 1 through 4. Again, he's writing to this church that he will establish here in Thessalonica. He says this, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or in any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. So why did he do it? Well, he gives three reasons. He did it because he knew his God. He, had, he said he had boldness in his God. He had boldness that his God was present with him, and he had boldness that his God was sovereign over everything that would happen as he walked into that synagogue. Secondly, he knew his calling. He said, I was entrusted with the gospel, entrusted with the gospel. Third, he knew that he only had one to please. He said, it is God who tests my heart. Brothers and sisters, if we are going to turn the world upside down, we'd better know those three things. We better know our God and have boldness in him. We better know our calling that we are entrusted with the gospel, not just to protect it, but to proclaim it. And we better know that we only have one to please. It's God himself who tests our hearts. And it doesn't matter what Swansboro, North Carolina, or anywhere outside of this, doesn't matter what they think about our message. We only have one to please, and it's him, him, him. So they entered into the synagogue, verse 2. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And what Paul doing, do, is doing here is, is he's probably doing something similar to what he did in Antioch and Pisidia back in chapter 13. I encourage you to go check that out. It gives us an extended length sermon of what we could expect he did when he went to Jewish synagogues. But I want you to note uh, just several elements of his evangelistic strategy here in Thessalonica. It'd be helpful for us. First, I want you to notice that he engaged people. It says that he went to the synagogue on three Sabbaths. That means that he engaged people over and over and over again with the gospel. 
See, he didn't, he didn't do, uh, he didn't play hot potato with the gospel. You know, in that game, hot potato, where kind of the deal is you want to get rid of the potato as soon as you can, get it, pass it off. See, he didn't come in there throwing a, a gospel grenade and then turn around and run the other way. No, he stayed in there. He engaged with people. He answered questions. Secondly, it was rational. It says he reasoned with them. Reason means to use argumentation to discuss or to debate. It was based on objective facts, not subjective feelings. Third, it was biblical. He reasoned with them from the scriptures. Paul's ministry was word-centered. He started with the scriptures, he started with the word, and he explained it. He expounded what it meant. Now, interestingly enough, this word explaining in this verse actually is the same word that was used by the disciples who were on the road to Emmaus when Jesus met them. And it's actually the word that they used to describe what Jesus did to them when he, when he opened up the scriptures. They said this, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? So that's what Paul's doing here. He is opening up the scriptures to them, letting them see, allowing them to see things that they have never seen before. For it's gospel-focused or Christ-focused. Paul was explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying that this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. So he's not trying to explain and prove how Noah was able to get all those animals on the ark, right? If they asked that question, he'd probably direct them to Kentucky, to the ark encounter, right? No, he's actually focusing in on something very specific, on showing how Jesus fulfills the prophecies of the Messiah in the Old Testament. He's lasering in on two specific things that the Jews had completely missed, that the Messiah would suffer and die and that he would rise from the dead. And so here's what Paul's doing. He said, okay, guys, go over to the scroll cabinet, grab the, the scroll of Isaiah, bring it out here, turn it to chapter 53. Look what it says. It says that the Messiah is going to suffer and die as a sin bearer for his people. And then look, go down a little bit further. Look what it says, that after he dies, that his days are going to be prolonged. He's, he's going to rise from the dead. He's not going to stay dead. If you can't see it there, go get the scroll of the Psalms. Bring it out. Look at Psalm 16. Here's what it says of the Messiah. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is the grave, place of the dead, or let your Holy One see corruption. Don't you see, brothers? This Jesus who suffered and died on the cross in Jerusalem, this Jesus who rose from the dead, this is the Messiah. Repent and believe in Him. Grace Church, this evangelistic strategy that Paul's using, it's not something that's antiquated. It's not something that's a relic that's just confined to the first century. It's something that you and I need to be seriously using when we engage people with the gospel. We need to engage with them. We need to reason with them. We need to open up the scriptures to them. We need to show them in the scriptures and prove that Jesus is the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and that salvation is found only in him. And then we need to call them to repentance and faith for the forgiveness of sins. Let me just say, we also don't need to neglect what Paul's doing here either when he is using this fulfilled prophecy scheme. He's saying, hey guys, look what it says in the Old Testament. Here's the prophecy of the Old Testament. Now look, here's how it's fulfilled in Jesus. You know, I was made keenly aware of this uh, probably about a year ago. 
uh, I was engaging with a girl about the gospel at a local coffee shop. And she, uh, long story short, she was a skeptic. Uh, when she had gone to college, an unbelieving professor had sowed seeds of doubt about the reliability of the scriptures. And she had completely just, uh, if she ever had faith, she had, she had completely abandoned it in her eyes. And so I said, okay, well, let, let me just ask you a question. So I'm going to quote a scripture to you. And I just want you to tell me who you think the scripture is about. And so I quoted Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I said, who do you think that's about? She said, duh, that's Jesus. I said, yeah, isn't it interesting? You just identified Jesus in a passage of Scripture that was written 700 years before he even walked on this earth. Her eyes got as big as saucers. She said, chills have just formed on my arms. I proclaimed the gospel to her. She wasn't converted right then and there. But I trust that the Lord will use his word, will verify the reliability of his word when we proclaim it like that. I had a former pastor in Louisville. That, that's what the Lord did to him. He was an agnostic in college. Somebody that was a normal, everyday Christian engaged him, opened up the scriptures of Isaiah to him, and boom, the Lord converted him right there. We don't need to neglect using this fulfilled prophecy scheme that Paul uses. Secondly, the gospel turns the world upside down in Thessalonica, verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So we got three categories of people here. We got the some of them, that's referring to the Jews. We got the devout Greeks, that's referring to those who are God-fearers, who worship the God of the Jews, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then we have the third category, which is probably not uh, that, uh, we probably don't understand that category as much as we might the others. Uh, that is the leading women. Leading women refers to women of high social status. Women who are well-to-do, that means they're wealthy, and well-connected. And it, some scholars actually think that these women could have possibly bankrolled, which means they supported, the synagogue there in Thessalonica with their funds. Well, these people, these, ca these three categories of people, these people were converted. You say, well, how do you know they're converted? It just says that they were persuaded. Well, I know that because Paul makes that point clear in 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5 when he says this, for we know, brothers, Loved by God that he has chosen you. Why do we know that? Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. So these people received a heart transplant just like Lydia did a few weeks ago. And I encourage you to, to listen to that message from a few weeks ago about the heart transplant that takes place that God has to do before one comes to faith. And so the world is turned upside down in Thessalonica. How did it happen? Well, it happened because God, Paul and Silas, that they proclaimed the gospel. It was accompanied by the Holy Spirit. And this gospel, by God's grace, snatched people out of the world and transferred them into the kingdom of Christ. And the world in Thessalonica and in the world in general is never going to be the same again. See, when a church is planted especially in a place where a church has is, is, is never been planted before like Thessalonica, a beachhead has been taken from the enemy from which Christ himself is going to launch 
gospel attacks into the world to save people. Third, people take notice that the world is turned upside down in Thessalonica. Verse 5, but the Jews were jealous. We've seen this before. What were the Jews jealous about? It doesn't tell us directly in the text, but we can, we can imagine that they were probably jealous about uh, their, their power being threatened. So imagine them every day walking by the house of Jason and looking over in the window, and every day they see more and more and more members of the synagogue gathered together to hear Paul and Silas open up the scriptures to them. Imagine them going to the river, by the river, and looking down and seeing many of the members of the synagogue there being baptized by Paul and Silas there in the river. They see some of the prominent women, some of the women who have bankrolled the synagogue. And you can see how that would strike a nerve that would threaten their power. Listen, the gospel always threatens something. It always threatens something. The gospel is going to threaten people's most cherished sins. The gospel is going to threaten people who have idols in their hearts. And I was made keenly aware of of one idol, and I'll just go ahead and say this. One of the biggest things in our culture that uh, is a cultural idol that the gospel threatens directly is the cultural idol of pluralism. You know what that is? That's this idea that all religions and non-religions are equally valid. If there is a God, there's a God at the top of the mountain, and every religion is a pathway to that God. No one is better than the other. That's what pluralism is. I was made aware of this when, when we lived in Louisville, Renee and I. She had invited one of her friends that she had met at work over to uh, our house for dinner. She was an older lady, and uh, as we sat down for dinner, I asked her, tell me what you think about Jesus. And she said, oh, I believe in Jesus, just not in the same way as you do. I said, okay, tell me how you believe in Jesus. And she begins to tell me how she had seen Jesus' face on a mountain in some other country and begins to just tell me things that have nothing to do with this Jesus of the scriptures. And I challenged her a little bit on those things. And after she was finished, I, I said, well, let, me, let me just ask you, you know, you've been able to share with me what you believe. I said, let me share with you what I believe. Let me share the gospel with you, what the Bible has to say about Jesus. She her demeanor changed immediately. She said, no, don't do it. All of a sudden, things got really uncomfortable. And uh, it, it wasn't before long she cut her visit short. And she basically stormed out the door. What happened there? Well, what happened is, is that she understood the exclusivity of the gospel. She had heard it before. And her idol that every religion is, is equally valid, was getting ready to be threatened. And that's why it caused her to respond the way she did and head out, the, hightail it out the door. See, a good indicator that we are being faithful with the gospel is that we're encountering resistance. Often, <laughs> that's what the gospel does. But the Jews were jealous, verse 5, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. So the Jews' jealousy led them to take action. It said they went and they got these, these wicked men of the rabble. 
So rabble means marketplace men. And so there was a marketplace in Thessalonica. This was a place where commerce was done. It was a place where socializing, social activities and socializing was done. It was also a place where idleness happened, where people who had nothing better to do would hang out. No, no gooders would hang out. And so they would, they would be out there. And so the Jews knew exactly where to go in order, in order to hire somebody to do their dirty work for them. So... What they did is they formed a flash mob and they head to the mall in Jacksonville and they stand up and they sing Amazing Grace. Right? That's what mobs do in, flash mobs do in America. Not here. No, this mob, this mob sets the city in an uproar. They fire people up. They stir the pot. They turn people against Paul and Silas. And this mob makes its way over to Jason's house and they start throwing rocks through the windows. And they break down the door. They, they take his hinges off the door and they throw it down and they infiltrate his house. And they are pursuing on a hot pursuit for Paul and for Silas. And they want to drag them out of that house and they want to give them a good old-fashioned beating. They want to rough them up. I mentioned earlier that Thessalonica was a free city. This would explain how a mob like this would exist maybe more maybe were tolerated a little bit more than some of the other cities that were not free to govern themselves. And so verse 6, and when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city authorities. Now think about that. Brand new baby Christians, just a few days old, dragged before the city authorities. What do you think that was going through their minds at that point? <laughs> what did I get myself into? I better rethink this Christian thing. That may have been what they were thinking, but I actually think that maybe they were thinking, wow, this is exactly what Paul told us to expect. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 4. For when we were with you, Acts 17, where we're at today, for when we were with you, we kept telling you, that means over and over and over again, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. And so we should expect persecution. We should prepare new believers to expect persecution. Paul actually says in the verse before the verse I just read there in, uh, verse, uh, in 1 Thessalonians that we are destined for it. Same thing Jesus said. And so the mob brings the new believers before the authorities shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. These men who have turned the world upside down. Boy, did they speak better than they knew of. This was meant as an insult, but little did they know that it was actually a compliment. We said earlier, to turn the world upside down means to bring about radical change, to uh, upset the status quo. And that's what the gospel is meant to do. Main two accusations against Paul and Silas are this, sedition and treason. Sedition and treason. Sedition is simply uh, conduct that incites rebellion against the state, in this case Rome. And treason is trying to replace Caesar with another king. So notice about this, this is interesting, common theme. <laughs> Just like in Philippi, this is not at all what the Jews had been upset about. 
It's not what they were jealous about. If you remember in Philippi, the slave owners were mad because their money source had dried up. Here in Thessalonica, the Jews were jealous because their power had dried up. See, the Jews, when they went to the mob to hire these thugs, they probably had told them the National Enquirer version of the gospel, of what it meant that Jesus was king. And so in the mob's perspective, they probably actually really did believe that Paul and Silas were guilty of sedition and treason, and they spread that like wildfire. Verse 8, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Jason, your grandmother would turn over in her grave if she knew you were harboring criminals like this. Sedition? Treason? It disturbs us to think that this might get back to Rome and we, this great city, might be thought to be harboring enemies of Caesar. And so they received bail money from Jason and the rest of the believers, which was a way to uh, secure or get a guarantee that there wasn't going to be any more trouble. And they let him go. In the next verse, which Jeff will pick up with next week, we actually learn that, that the brothers in Thessalonica, uh, Thessalonica, they actually decide to send Paul and and his missionary band away under the cover of night. It wasn't a, an act of, of cowardice. It was an act of prudence. They thought, and rightly so, that it was better to have Paul alive away from them than to have him dead there in Thessalonica. And so they send him away. And so just to summarize, the mission in Thessalonica is a blazing success. It's a blazing success because in spite of much conflict, much persecution, conversions take place a church is sprouted up a beachhead was taken from the enemy where christ himself would launch his gospel attacks in thessalonica and then throughout the world and ironically maybe not ironically but that's exactly what we see in this church paul writes this in first thessalonians 1 8 about this church after he had left them for not only has the word of the lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. So now this little church in Thessalonica, brand new baby church is on mission, turning the world upside down. So as we think about application, how might we, Grace Church, how might we as a church be more faithful to this mission we've been entrusted with of turning the world upside down, starting right here in Swansboro. I want to talk about a couple of things today. First, here are eight ways to ensure that we will not turn the world upside down. So these would be things that we would want to avoid, by the way, in case you didn't catch that. First, we will not turn the world upside down if we fail to deal with the idols that are behind our fears of sharing the gospel. See, fear means that something, is, something that we value is threatened. And oftentimes when it comes to, to sharing the gospel with people, oftentimes behind those fears are the idols of reputation and the idols of comfort. And so if your idol is reputation, that means you really truly value how other people look at you. You really, truly value how they see you. And so you do all that you can to protect that idol. So that means if you are going to share the gospel and that, has a, that threatens how other people are going to look at you, 
you're just not going to do it. It doesn't matter how, how much somebody like me gets up here and is blue in the face saying, go share the gospel, go share the gospel, go share the gospel. You're just not going to do it if you have an idol of reputation. Same with comfort. If your idol is comfort, that means that you'll do anything to protect your comfort. That means that, that you will, if it, if it gives you discomfort to go and share the gospel with people, and you're just not going to do it because you've got that idol of comfort. And so we've got to deal with those idols. Secondly, we will not turn the world upside down if we convince ourselves that we're not responsible to share the gospel because we don't have the gift of evangelism. We don't have the gift of evangelism. And so, first of all, I'm not even sure that evangelism is a spiritual gift. You'll not see that on any of the list in the scriptures. Uh, there is an evangelist in, in, in uh, Ephesians chapter 4. That's a gift to the church. That's a role. Uh, but, not an, not, but even if it is a, a, a spiritual gift, evangelism is a spiritual gift. Let me just show you how the logic falls apart. What if I told you that, well, I just don't have the, 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 the spiritual gift of service, so I'm just not going to serve. Be crazy. What if I said, well, you know what? I just, I don't have the spiritual gift of mercy, so I'm not responsible to be merciful to people. Right? That would be, the logic falls apart. Same with evangelism. Third, we will not turn the world upside down if we live as though politics is the answer to the world's problems rather than the gospel. Now, I don't know any Christian that would say that I really think that politics will turn the world upside down. However, I know many Christians that live like that. Live like that. That means that they talk about the politics as the answer to the problems of the world more than they talk about the gospel being the answer to the problems of the world. We'll never turn the world upside down like that. Fourth, treat evangelism as the only the responsibility of us as individuals rather than the responsibility of us as the church as a whole. See, the Great Commission is given to the church, not just us as individuals. And so if we are like a bunch of lone rangers going around and everybody's just doing their own thing. Some people are sharing the gospel, some aren't. That's not what we've been called to. We've been called to do this mission together. We're all a part of this outpost to collect do collective efforts for, for all of us. Five, convince ourselves that we're too busy for evangelism rather than seeing evangelism as something that we do in the midst of our busyness. Six, don't pray every day for opportunities to share the gospel, but if you do, don't be actively looking for those opportunities. Seven, if you don't know how to share the gospel, don't tell anybody. Don't try to get equipped. Just keep doing what you've always done. Eight, believe that resistance and rejection to the gospel is a reason to stop sharing it. Now, hopefully you get the point that these are the things that we need to, to avoid. And if, if we are engaged in any of those things, we need to, we need to repent from those. If we don't, that we will not turn the world upside down in Swansboro or otherwise. But now I want to suggest some ways that we might move towards turning the world upside down. And these are just ideas. These are more of conversation starters, things to get the juices flowing in our minds, how we can be more faithful to this mission. And so let's first start off in our neighborhoods. We each live in a neighborhood or some, somewhere that's neighborhood-like. So how can we as a church turn your neighborhood upside down with the gospel? First, let me just give the idea, the suggestion of, have you ever thought about hosting an evangelistic Bible study? Now what that is, is you're inviting your neighbors to a study of the Bible 
And the idea is over a certain period of time, maybe five or six weeks, you are feeding them, and that's the lure, and then you're getting them in, and then you're walking through the Bible, showing how it's all pointing to Christ, showing how all of the Old Testament's pointing to Christ, showing what it means to, to trust in Him, showing what, uh, what, what the gospel calls us to. Secondly, uh, now, let me go back to that one. There's probably going to be two pushbacks on, on that particular one, evangelistic Bible studies. First pushback is this. Well, I would do that, but I just don't know how to lead an evangelistic Bible study. Great. That's why it's our mission. We have plenty of guys in this church who would be happy to come to your house and lead the evangelistic Bible study. You just do the role of actually just inviting your neighbors. Second, second pushback I know is this. Well, my, my neighbors are just not going to come to something like that. I just don't think they'd be interested in anything like that. Have you ever heard the expression, maybe I made it up, that if you don't throw your line in the water, you're not going to catch any fish? Yeah? Well, if we don't throw our line out, we're not going to catch any fish, which means that we throw the line out, we let the Lord worry about drawing people to himself. And you'd be surprised how many people would actually show up to an evangelistic Bible study at your house. Take that step. Secondly, there are certain uh, holidays during the year that have a direct connection to the gospel. Christmas, Easter, St. Patrick's Day, and Halloween. Reformation Day, right? And so here's, a, here's just an idea. What about if you bake some killer cookies, put them in a nice bin, put some solid gospel tracks in there, and went around from door to door saying, Merry Christmas, Happy St. Patrick's Day, and seek as you're going out to, to share the gospel with people. And if you don't, they're taking the gospel inside their house. And so that's getting the gospel out there. Secondly, how can we move towards turning our communities upside down with the gospel? When I say communities, I'm talking about Hubert, Camp Lejeune, uh, Swansboro, Cedar Point, Emerald Isle, places like that. How can we do that? Well, I think we already have a built-in mechanism for that, our small groups. Uh, we have a small group that meets in, in that part of the world and a, a small group that meets in that part of the world here locally. And uh, we may have more coming up in the future. But think about this as, as a small group. What if you started to turn your small group into more of an evangelistic small group? That doesn't mean that you're, not, you're, you're, you're doing the same things as you're doing now. But you're opening it up where you're saying, okay, guys, we want to actually invite unbelievers to come into our small group. And so you'd be surprised. People are craving community. Craving community. And so if you say, hey, Listen, a group of people from my church, we meet at my house uh, or whatever house at you know, such and such a date at such and such a time. Man, we, we enjoy a meal together. It's really laid back. We study the Bible. We, we pray together. It's really a really good time. And by the way, there's a family there that I really think you'd connect with. Those are good ways to, to get people in. Secondly, uh, another opportunity would be as your small group. Maybe once or twice a month, you as a small group commit to going out together and to a public place with, for the purpose of engaging people, building relationships, and sharing the gospel with people. And so you might go to a public place like a restaurant. You might go to a public place like a park or a coffee shop, something that that nature. Third, how can we move towards turning our community at large upside down? That's all our communities together in this area. Well, every year there are events that draw the community at large. There's the Mullet Festival in Swansboro. There's the St. Patrick's Day Festival in Inward Isle. There's probably more than that. But what if we as a church, these are ideas, what if we 
had a collective effort to go out into those places and, and, and hand out creative gospel tracts that people would actually enjoy receiving. There's a lot of those out there. If you want me to tell you about some of them, I can, I, can, I can share that with you after the service today. We could also share the gospel by, wait for it, street preaching. Who wants to volunteer? I'll be taking applicants for that right now. No, there are plenty of guys in this church Maybe not plenty. There are several guys in this church that would be happy to do that and do it effectively. Third, we could set up a booth that is creatively designed to attract people for the purpose of sharing the gospel with them. So I'll give you one example of that. This is not our context, so we wouldn't copy this, but this will get our creative juices flowing. Uh, David Platt shares an experience of when he was in seminary in New Orleans, one of the darkest places on earth of partnering with a church that was in the heart of the, the French Quarter. And the purpose of partnering with the church was to, to partner with them to bring the gospel to their specific neighborhood. And so they went to this place called Jackson Square, and here's what he writes. He says, My team looked around at all these tables with fortune tellers and tarot card readers, and we thought, why don't we get in on that action? So we went and bought a table, put a cloth on it, and some candles. We made a sign that said, we'll tell your future for free. We sat up next, right next to the voodoo queen of New Orleans and sat down with a couple of chairs across the table from us. They would sit down and ask, you'll tell my future for free? And we'd say, absolutely, guaranteed. We, we just asked them some questions to establish the fact that they had sin in their life. And then we would tell them, your future doesn't look very good. And we tell them how it could change through the gospel. Now, that ministry, they continued to, to engage in that ministry. And that ministry converted more and more and more people when they went out there. And so the point of all of this is just to encourage us to get involved, to get our, our heads together on this mission that we've been called to. The clock is, is ticking. Our lives on this earth are, are drawing to a close. We have a mission. Let's just strive to be found faithful to that mission. And I'll leave you with some encouragement, some inspiration to do that from Charles Spurgeon. If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped about their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions. And let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. We have a mission, church, to turn the world upside down. You ready to go? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenge that you give to us. We thank you, Lord, that we see, even in the midst, even in this text, even in the midst of, of opposition, of persecution, of affliction to the gospel, that, Lord, you are sovereign over it all, and you bring about conversions through the proclamation of your gospel. Let us be a people, Lord, who take this mission you've given us seriously. Pray that you would bless this church. To, to get on, on, a, on a place, on a track where we are even more faithful to, to that mission than we even are today. And I pray, Lord, that, 
that you would bless our efforts by, by saving your people, drawing them to yourself through the proclamation of your glorious gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.